I may have mentioned it before, but since I'm not anywhere near as pretentious enough to think you listen to all of our podcasts, I'll say it again. In my basement is a piece of, let's call it furniture, because it's made from good wood. In the basement, there is a Fisher console stereo equipped with an AM FM radio and a record player. That's right, a record player with speakers that if only on two volume-wise will blow you away with enough sound and power to sit your ass right back on the couch. I love my records, my albums, vinyl, yeah. I was around for eight tracks and then cassettes and then the CD. I know how to download a song on my phone or computer, but there's something, dare I say, musically religious about putting on an album on a turntable and listening to the choice you made. And depending on how well you've taken care of that album, there may be more pops and cracks than in some of your other records, or maybe even a deep groove of a scratch that may cause the album to skip, or repeat a verse, repeat a verse, repeat a verse. <laughs> but who cares? Those are musical scars, my friends, from days and nights well spent through parties and poker games, through moments of romance and reflections, and sometimes just because. I'm Dino Tripodis, and welcome to Whiskey Business, a podcast, as you know by now, not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. And yeah, that little dissertation about albums and music uh, is for a reason, which we'll get to in just a moment with our guest. But first, the guest bottle. It's a classic. It's 12-year-old Old Medley, and I picked Old Medley just because of medley, as in medleys of songs. But the actual real, other real reason is it's another whiskey brought back from the grave to find its place in this new bourbon world. It seems like uh, with everything, all things bourbon these days, uh, some classic whiskeys are saying, hey, we were here before any of them. Let's bring it on back. This was originally uh, presented to us by a fifth-generation master distiller, Thomas Aquinas Medley, who... Uh, brought this to us right after Prohibition was repealed. It's a limited 12-year-old whiskey that you're drinking right now and released by 7th generation distiller Charles Medley to honor his late grandfather. So uh, a little bit more about the old Medley in just a little bit as we get to it. But uh, next, let's introduce my record guy. Not only a record guy, a record promoter, a guy who's been in the record album, CD, cassette business for quite some time. And I'm very fortunate, people. I, when, I, when I think and listen back to these podcasts, I have a lot of interesting friends. I have a lot of good, interesting friends who do a lot of good, interesting things. Cool yeah, a lot of cool shit. That's right. Maybe that should be your nickname. Cool shit. <laughs> Kevin Young is is my guest, ladies and gentlemen. Record promoter extraordinaire, Kevin Young, and longtime friend. How you doing, buddy? Great, buddy. Yeah. Good to be here. Good I'm, to see I'm you. I'm glad to hear you. All the way, he, he drove all the way from Cleveland, Ohio, to be with us here in, in, in quaint little Columbus, Ohio. Well, and to be with my lifelong brother. I know, man. We go back a ways. Yeah. We met in, yeah. uh, in Steubenville, Ohio. When I moved back to Steubenville after a uh, a stint living on an island in Greece with my parents, and and you were you're one of the first first guys that that, that I met and hung out with, and um, it's interesting when I think back on those days, and we'll get to those days yeah. a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how some of the stuff we did back then, yep, as kids mm -hmm. and had a blast with kind of set the tone for where we are today. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's Absolutely. so so cool. You are 
for uh, practical terms, a record promoter. How long have you been? How long have you been a record promoter? I've been doing this since 1986. 86. Yes. So quite some time. 31 years. 31 years in the record business. Is that right? Back Somebody got to count. Yeah, Hansberry will do the math. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. We we never get called out on the math on this. Okay, good. We get called out on some other things, mm -hmm. <laughs> but never the math. And I have to say this, you know, it was really a shock to hear you say shit. I Usually when a microphone is in front of me, I'm thinking, okay, we're on the air. Right. But we can say bad words because well, we it's can. a podcast. I mean, we don't do it uh, gratuitously, mm -hmm. but if they happen to spill out in the moment, mm -hmm. then so be it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, man, Kevin, cool shit young. I like it. <laughs> What's up, cool shit? <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, man. Um, so, yeah, a record promoter for a lot of years. When you started, it was actually still records. Yes, which were a real pain in the ass to carry onto planes, stuff in suitcases. You know, it's, it's really hard to imagine that there was a day when you couldn't just press a button and deliver a song to somebody, that it didn't show up at somebody's radio station mm -hmm. until you showed up with the record itself or until you mailed it out to somebody. And FedEx at that time was relatively new, so even getting music to somebody overnight was a big, big deal. And I've got some really good stories about getting music to radio stations. Go ahead. You I know, mean, I mean, especially back in those early days. So were your visits back then in the beginning mm -hmm. um more exciting i mean were you were you actually welcomed with any type of anticipation because you were bringing something new or was it still a struggle you still had to be the guy that was pushing a new artist and maybe a program director was like uh i gotta talk to a record guy today well the difference between then and now is that since music wasn't just available at the press of your of a keyboard, right. you know, and you could send it everywhere, uh, record companies actually had more leverage uh, with radio stations. You know, when you're working for the record company that has, you know, Genesis, who's had so many number one songs, and, uh, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and, you know, Led Zeppelin, and U2, like I did back then when I was working at Atlantic Records, and radio stations knew that you were really the source for all these you know, and you, you were the source for the music and for access to the stars. You had leverage. So whether the relationship was friendly or antagonistic, you would be able to get into the radio station. And record companies could actually tell a radio station, look, you know, if you if if I'm upset enough at you, then we'll cut your service. You won't get any music from us whatsoever. And that wow. was not not that was never a position a radio station wanted to be in. You didn't want to be that station. No, no. It wasn't something that you pulled out, you know, flippantly. Right. But, you know, there was always that thing. It was it was your it was your ace in the hole if, right. you, if you needed it. Right. When did that change? It changed, you know, uh, it, when broadband happened. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, you, you didn't need physical copies of music to play and to get music. And, uh, you know... Uh, but didn't it, they still have to make arrangements with said label or said artist in order to play those songs? I mean... The, you know, the other thing about broadband is it opened up to so many artists. Mm -hmm. So music became so much more available beyond the record companies. So, you know, now when I go to radio stations, I don't have the kind of leverage that I used to have in that sense of the word. So you your know? job's harder now? Much harder. But you still love it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've been. I, I love it more today than I ever have. Why? Because I'm older, I'm more experienced, um, and, uh, you know, it's in a, in a different kind of way, there's not as much pressure. Interesting. Now, when I said back in 86, you know, you actually had records, obviously. Uh, vinyl is has made a huge comeback. Sony just started pressing records again. Sure. Vinyl for the first time in like 28 years. Mm -hmm. and they finally got into the game. And, uh, uh, you know, I'll get an email from Barnes & Noble yeah. on, on, my, on my phone about <laughs> new album. On your phone. On my phone about <laughs> new vinyl yeah. that's being either released by current artists mm -hmm. or uh, new remastered vinyl from 
artists in the past, you mm-hmm. know, discs that have been remastered and, and reissued, but everybody's everybody's digging the vinyl. And I like to sit back here and go, huh, you don't say. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know why. Why? Um, you know, you can get, music is just so available now. You, you know, you can get it on your phone, you can get it on your iPad, wherever. Uh-huh. It's so easy to get. But people want more of an attachment, you know? Do they? Because it seems and, like they went away from that attachment for a while. Because, you it know, would, because, it, 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 it was a change in attachment. It was a change from, oh, I can listen to music on this little device. I can, you know, music is so portable and I can get it here and I can get it here and I can get it for free. So that attachment has given way to... The idea that, well, if you really love an artist, it's not enough just to have that sound coming out of your mm-hmm. phone, or, you know, that if you really love an artist, wow, you know, that gatefold, that gatefold thing ha- helps you feel more connected. You can read liner notes. You can see big pictures. And there was a time, though, where people obviously kind of tossed that by the wayside and sure. just went for the for the music itself, because I think that's part of the, that's one of the singular joys of having an album is opening up that album and reading the liner notes and some of the some of the amazing artwork that went into album covers right and, and right. or photography that went into certain covers and uh, um, and even if you go further back in the day like back in the 70s there was always there always seemed to be a favorite album album that you would use to uh, uh, separate your pot <laughs> separate the pot from the seeds yeah. uh, give, give me no 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 the zeppelin album yeah, the eagles album won't work i need yeah. the zeppelin album yeah. <laughs> i this. i you know i i mean you know a single copy uh a, a 12 inch single copy of comfortably numb i think would work perfectly for that <laughs> You mentioned Atlantic. Well, how many labels have you worked for over the years? I worked for Atlantic. I worked for RCA two different times. I worked for Virgin Records for, for over 10 years. Ooh. I worked for uh, Lava Records. With Mr. That was Mr. Jason Flom's label. Jason was uh, one of the great A&R people at Atlantic for the past few decades. Um, and uh, you know now I work with a firm called Intune Music, which basically is an outsourced promotion company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, is it? Do they specialize in, in a certain genre of music, or is they or are they just pretty much anything that comes their way? We've got uh, we just could, we we have all bases covered except for urban, and who knows that may be on the uh, horizon. Uh-huh. But what Intune does is cater to artists who have struck out a, away from record companies uh, and uh, want to do it on their own. So artists like Lindsey Sterling who uh, is a great violinist, who has an incredible, uh, you know, she has more views on YouTube than so many people. I think she's one of the, they, uh, Forbes called her one of the top five YouTube uh, millionaires. Uh, her, 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 her views go into the billions, which is just extraordinary. Now, I might be asking a stupid question mm-hmm. here, uh, but just for the sake of, of of the answer when you mentioned YouTube, uh-huh. is that is that is that a tool that helps you? I mean, as far as you and your artists, is is YouTube an important? Absolutely, YouTube is the number one uh, source of music discovery, uh, and it's been very very a very very good way for people to tune in to the music they're looking for and to find other music that might interest them. So, what's your purpose? I mean, given seriously. I mean, given everything that's out there now, as far as technology, YouTube, and and, and everything else that's out there, you know, uh, music with the touch of a button. Mm-hmm. Wh- where does your position as a record promoter still come into play? Well, funny, funny you should ask that because I used to worry about that, but more recently, it's come to light that there's still a great, great need for radio. Uh, for example, thank you. I was well. I can tell you, <laughs> Woo! it's all good. It's all good. We're, we're going to be here for a while. Still got jobs. Here's here's the dealio. So uh, I was on a conference call uh, a couple weeks ago, and we we're discussing an artist named Love. It's L A U V. Great song, by the way. I like me better. Check it out. Uh, and uh, you know, Love uh, has the backing of a uh, of the biggest publishing company on the face of the earth, Cobalt, and uh, he has more streaming 
he, he has an incredible streaming profile. That is to say, so many people have checked this guy out on Spotify, on YouTube, on all the other sources, you know, Pandora, uh, Apple. And, uh, you know, it, 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 they're so much so that he rivals a lot of the artists that are already in the top 20 uh, on the charts. That's without any airplay. On the conference call, you know, the guy who was leading the call said, you know what? Look at all this great streaming. Look at this great revenue that the streaming is bringing in. If we can get radio to play this guy's record, the streaming will increase threefold. Okay. So, you know, you might think, well, why, does, why would a music company or an artist need radio? Well, there it is right there. I mean, you need radio because you want to increase that streaming, which will increase your revenues, which will sell tickets. Lindsey Sterling is another great example. You know, Lindsey uh, is making great money touring, filling up arenas, some of the biggest venues around worldwide. But she wants radio airplay. Why? Because it adds to it greatly. Greatly, it adds to it, and she's been working very hard. We've been working very hard with her to get radio airplay. So you're telling me that radio is mm -hmm. still, if you're if uh, if you're using the music business, we're calling it a mountain. Mm -hmm. uh, you're climbing the mountain, and mm -hmm. just before you get to the peak of that mountain, just below it is 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 streaming and and maybe a YouTube video and and all that. It's successful, and you've done well. Mm -hmm. Nobody will. Nobody will give you any grief for getting as high as you got, but you still, even though I'm successful, yes, I still want to get to the to the peak and and say, been there, done that, I made it. It's almost like uh, the crowning achievement of success. Right. It adds so much more. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So when I said, so when you said this guy, this guy Lav that's streaming and and is is, is he's making money. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I mean, to and give the radio and the and the radio, the the record people are making money. Every, yeah. Everybody's making money, but not as much money as they could make. So does it basically still come down to the almighty dollar? Right. Well, I mean, everything does. Yeah. You know, and 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 a little bit more on the business too. Record companies are seeing money pour in because of the streaming. Okay. In fact, if you go on Goldman Sachs's website. You'll find a dissertation about, you know, the notion that you should invest in music companies again now because they're seeing revenues go up as a result of streaming. Now, all that said, you know, you want to get back on the radio, and a great way to get back on the radio is to get radio stations to take a look at the streaming. So that's another part of the puzzle, too. You can't walk into a radio station and, and walk in flat-footed and say, hey, I've got this really great record. You should play it. So how tough is it for somebody, you know, I, I apologize. I, I don't know how to apologize. Mm -hmm. You mentioned love. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Of course not. I don't know love. <laughs> I don't know love. You know. I don't know love. And so how hard is it for somebody to get into the business these days? I want to I make music. I'm a talented mm -hmm. singer-songwriter, mm -hmm. and I want to get into the business. What do I do? Uh, you know, it's very, very difficult. Uh, you have to know that you're in it for the passion of it, not for the money. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, you're gonna have to make a living. Right. You know, um, and when you say, how hard is it to get into the business? Well, where in the business do you see yourself? Do you go to Nashville, become a session musician? You know, there's this guy that I'm- No, I don't wanna be a session musician. All right. I'm, 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 I'm role playing now. Okay. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> no. I mean, all right, let me, let me role play. Yeah. No, I'm a good musician and I can definitely be a session musician, mm -hmm. but you know, uh, man, I've, I, I write music and and I want to perform my music. So I, I don't think I could be content being just a session musician. Kevin, what do I do? So you want to be a star. You write music. You want to be the front man. You want to be the guy who all the girls are just dying to meet. Yeah, that wouldn't suck. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But yeah, I, I, I want... You know, what's, what's your crowd? What kind of crowd? I mean, is it the top 40 crowd? Is it the country crowd? Where are you going? I, I don't know. I mean, saying I'm in Nashville and say I want to be a, a country artist yeah. and I'm here and, and I'm frustrated because I'm hearing some songs on the radio that I think are crap. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know in my heart of hearts I've written better music. I just need to get it out there and have somebody to hear it. Mm -hmm. 
you know, or if if I have to take the baby steps, mm-hmm. at least let me sell a song. You mentioned Cobalt as far as one of the biggest publishers. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, is is that a way to go in? You sell your music to somebody else? Because it seems to me, mm-hmm. and it seems like it's always been, that's one thing that maybe not has changed. Mm-hmm. Writing the song is is always better than performing the song because there seems to be more cash to be made from well Actually, you know the the people who own the songs are the ones that get paid right you know if you if you write the song you own the song it's like owning your own house right you know and and um, you know uh, you know whether you perform the song yourself or whether somebody performs it for you 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 get a cut you get you get paid you're yeah. getting you're getting a check in the mailbox right right right, right. for you the know, longevity of that song so you know from there it's like uh, you know the best thing to do is to look you're just starting out to look around you where where can you go and play your music how can you work to build up your following on twitter how can you work to build up your following on you know snapchat all the various uh social media out there you know what are you going to do to produce some kind of video so you can get it on youtube and what are you going to do to get people to come in to the local clubs to hear your music play that's where you start does anybody get discovered anymore does anybody just you know does it that happens. does that happen like some guy sitting in a club mm-hmm. and he hears this great singer songwriter in some divey little bar and you know the ears prick up and go wow what's that and who's that does that ever happen anymore I'm sure it happens but that's not what I hear about uh, you know you know I'm rom- I'm I'm romanticizing it a yeah, little bit right right but right. but yeah, it has happened in in mm-hmm. in, yeah. in days of you know of, of music mean, old. I mean, I can you know, Melissa Etheridge was one of those people. I mean, she was singing in some bar in Long Island, and you know, uh, I think it was Chris Blackwell who had Island Records walked in and happened to hear her play, and okay, boom, 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 boom. And I mean, and that's you know, not that long ago. Oh yeah, it is. I worked Melissa Records, and those were God. That was the late eighties. Uh, I guess the late eighties doesn't. That's uh, I guess I, when I think long time ago but this the romanticizing that i'm doing is mm-hmm. goes back to like 50s and 60s you know you can you can come into the more recent past you know i worked spice girl records and you know the spice girls was conceptualized by uh you know the management company and then they went about looking for the talent the plug into the holes the plug you know the fill the roles of this con- this conception that they had and I'm not really sure exactly what the criteria was, you know, but it wasn't altogether, you know, great, um, you know, the, the ability to sing wonderfully. Right. You know, it was, uh, uh, you know, you were, you, they lo- were looking for people to fill these roles, kind of like the monkeys. The monkeys, yeah. You know. There was a certain look that they were going for. Right, right. And personalities, mm-hmm. and, and they had a machine that they were building, and they just had to get the right parts. Right, right, exactly. Interesting. You know. Uh, much like uh, much like a lot of boy bands. Yeah. Let's take a little pause. Uh, right. You're you're enjoying the old medley. Oh. I pick and once again I picked the medley because medley music. <laughs> right. You know, it seemed yeah. like a like a good match. But do you like it? Because you're you're drinking a whiskey that they only made 2,500 cases of. You were telling me I, it's tremendous. It's wonderfully smooth. Uh, you know, I mean, it's got a, a lot of rich flavor, and you would expect to get this. You know kind of a tough taste at the end but instead it's really really smooth and it just fills your palate it has a nice warm finish which is surprising giving the when you when you smell it i noticed that you were smelling it first Mm -hmm. and you could you can you can definitely smell the alcohol oh yeah in this one right Mm -hmm. out of the gate uh but it's kind of oaky and vanilla like but the oh the alcohol that's gonna have a harsh finish not not so no, that's exactly it yeah you're expecting well here comes the punch yeah no it actually has a a, a much yeah. Uh, warmer finish than you would expect, but it doesn't die. You know, a lot of there there are bourbons out there where, you know, it's smooth, but you're not getting anything lasting. This right. really this really hangs in. And there. some people, given the history of this bottle, like I said, 2,500 cases mm-hmm. made, mm-hmm. Um, for the price, it it retails between 50 and 78 dollars a bottle. And given the fact that it's been out for a while. I would imagine now, if you find it, uh, you'll see it probably leaning more towards the higher end of that. And some people 
uh, some whiskey enthusiasts may just buy it and never open it just because they've got a bottle of Old Medley. There were only 2,500 cases made, so there's yeah. a limited amount. But as I've said in a previous podcast, collect art, drink whiskey. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah. That's good. We're going to put that on a T-shirt, right, Hansberry? <laughs> So I, I want to say a little bit more about, you know, you're the artist and you, you want to break out and you want to be famous and all that kind of thing. And I was talking about, you know, starting out with the local scene and building your, your, your uh, you know, your, your, you know, your web properties. Uh, you know, um, take a look at Machine Gun Kelly out of Cleveland. He's a textbook example, you know. He started doing his thing, and this is, you know, relatively recent history. He started doing his thing in Cleveland started building up a following. You know, pretty soon he was selling out the House of Blues in Cleveland. You know, he expanded that, had, you know, had pushed into markets like St. Louis, Detroit, all the markets that are relatively within driving distance in the Midwest, and record companies were beaten down, beating a path to his door. And one after another, he told them no until finally he signed a deal. That's a guy who took a look at what was around him, started writing songs, and put himself in the catbird seat. If that's really what you want to do, you got to look at what Machine Gun Kelly did, and you got to follow that model. You make it yourself. You do it from home base. So on some level, there has to be, like any business, a business model. Right, right. And here's the other thing. It takes a while to be able to write a hit song, you know? It's, it's the very, very, very rarest person that sits down and writes an incredible hit song. Every artist that's out there that has hit songs will tell you stories about how many songs they wrote that just didn't cut it, you know? I mean, you know, Michael Jordan had more misses than he had, you know, two-pointers and three-pointers. Michael Jordan was kicked off the basketball team when he was in, when he was in high school. Yeah, yeah. So what's, uh, I, I don't know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, mm -hmm. but, you know, what makes a hit song? Because you and I both know that we hear crap on the radio. and Well, crap is a relative term. And then we hear some really great stuff on the radio. Right, right. I mean, you know, crap is relative to what you like. Do they still look for the hook? Do they still look for the, you know, yeah, the, you gotta, the lyrics? You, you, you got to have a hook. And, and the secret to writing a hit song is that you need to, you know, a hit song is basically a slogan, you know? Interesting. People hear the radio and people hear music before they really listen to it, you know? And, and what, what you need to understand is that a song that becomes a hit record first appeals to people's unconscious, you know? Think of simple things like Kisses on My List. Kiss on My List by Paul and Oates. Yeah. It's very repetitive. Right. If you write out the lyrics, you're going to find out there's not that many words in that song. You know? Mm -hmm. What they have to say about the song has more to do with the inflection of their voices and the music behind the song. And man, you know, just by mentioning that song, you folks that are out there listening right now, you can hear that song right. in, in your ears in your mind's ear, if you will, instead of your eyes, your, right. your mind's no. eye. My, my brain is, right, my right, brain is right. playing boom, the chorus boom, in my boom. head as we speak. That song went right to your subconscious the minute it, it, you first heard it. And it lives there, and it'll live there forever. Interesting. Now, and he, he, here's another good example. Uh, Tom Petty. You know, Tom Petty's had a journey. You know, his first song of relative note, and it wasn't a hit, was American Girl, which is a great song. I love that song. But, you know, he really wasn't hitting the top 40 charts and really wasn't into making incredibly big, huge money until, you know, songs came along like, I won't back down, mm -hmm. right? Slogan, I won't back down. So few words in that song. Such a huge hit. Why does it work that way? Because... Never forget this. People hear radio. They hear songs before they listen to them. And when they're hearing songs, it's got to be something that touches, that cuts through all the noise that's around each one of us. 
and gets to your unconscious. Uh, that's, that puts the stamp there that makes you turn up the radio I've and go boom. Never looked at it that way, but when I think of Springsteen and born in the USA mm-hmm. slogan, I yeah. mean, yeah. Right. Statement. Right. Yeah. Slogan. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and, and of course, love songs, we're all trying to figure out love. We've been trying to figure out love from since the time we were right. born. You know, there's, love is a very complex thing. Don't think you're going to write this complex song about the complexities of love because it's going to go right over people's heads. You but if want- there's a slogan in there like... Uh, Jay Giles, Love Stinks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. You know, in the more recent past, Bruno Mars is doing a great song, a great job yeah. at coming up with slogans. Right. You know, the Chainsmokers. Right. They've got great slogans in their song. Those are the songs that become hits. The ones that are sending a subliminal message. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, make that money. Uh-huh. Writing those slogans, and then when you make that money, if you want to write complex songs and you know do something completely different, well, you got the money to, to do it. All right, let me go back a little bit. Mm-hmm. 1986. Uh, in, I, I understand the part of going to the radio stations and promoting the record. As a record promoter, mm-hmm. what was some of your more historic moments actually working and and or maybe even touring? with artists to promote those records. Name drop some people on me. <laughs> Kevin, cool as shit, young. Tell yeah, me. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me some of the cool people that have come in and out of your record life. Well, you know, this is this is a long story, but it's worth the listen, okay? All right. And um, it uh, meanders its way to the grunge era. Huge era. Yeah, okay. Very exciting time yeah, in music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, pull up a chair, listen, because this will be a story that you'll tell your friends, but you're going to have to be patient, folks. It's 1987, all right, and I'm still a rookie at Atlantic Records, uh, you know, and uh, I'm enthusiastic about what I do, but there's an incredible amount of pressure, and we have this band that we're promoting called Firetown. Uh, and, you know, to give you an idea of what this Firetown record sounds like. You know, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of what Soul Asylum sounded like, but only Soul Asylum came years later. Okay. Problem was, is we're in the middle of this hairband craze, all right? And Atlantic Record was one of the biggest labels for the hairband craze. I mean, we had Skid Row, we had Winger, you know, other bands that were big at the time was Cinderella, you know, Twisted Sister was on, I mean, that was the era. And here we are with this album that sounds like Soul Asylum. But Atlantic's putting the hammer down on this record. They really believe in this record. And they're telling us all, if you don't get airplay on this thing, you're fired. Damn. Yeah. Well, you know, and I come from a working class family. You know, to get fired is an absolute uh, unheard disgrace. Of. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know. So uh, you can imagine how hard we're all working. And there was 26 people on the staff at the time, you know, to, to do everything we can to get this record that absolutely doesn't fit at radio. You know, and uh, the band came through my territory. At the time, I had Western New York and uh, Eastern Ohio. You know, I lived in Cleveland. And, uh, you know, the tour started in Syracuse, went to Rochester, Buffalo. And uh, all these markets, it was my job to try to get the, the band into radio stations for interviews. You know, to try to get people to come out to their shows, radio people, to come out to their shows and go, well, you know, the band's certainly nice people, you know, maybe we'll give it a shot. It ain't happening. You know, I, I you know, I, I, I'm hanging out with these guys from Firetown, and uh, they can see how hard I'm working, and I've tried to take them into the station in Buffalo, and they were there with me, you know, and got the cold, hard rejection. No, the program director doesn't want to see you or your band. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. But, you know, okay. they, they, they could see that I was trying, and I got to be friendly with the guys, and we had some beers, you know, and I made sure that things were taken care of at the venues, you know, um, and they appreciated that. And we got to Cleveland, and, uh, you know, the band asked me to come on board the bus. They wanted to have a conversation. Uh, and what they wanted to know was why doesn't anybody want to play our record really they wanted the truth okay and i'm a rookie but you know you're going into a really dangerous spot when you're going to tell 
a band in this situation exactly what's going on because you know are you supposed to tell the truth you're not you're supposed to say you know you really ought to talk to the people in new york about that that's the, that's but the I, go-to response yeah and does that usually did, did that usually work that would that usually keep I them think, at, keep them at bay i think most people would lie all right uh, but uh, I'm not like that. Kevin Young does not lie. And uh, Kevin Young's a solid individual. Thank you. Kevin Young is new in the business. <laughs> and and I, I got to be close to these guys, you know, and I really, oh. I, I felt for them. You became their friend. I became their friends. And, uh, and I just told him, I said, you know, um, I've been threatened with my job. Everybody on the staff has been threatened with their jobs. <laughs> you know, we are all working so hard to get your record played. Uh, I've managed to get some airplay, but it's been by twisting arms. People don't feel that your record's right. And uh, the leader of the band stood up in an absolute rage and said, fuck this, fuck all this shit, fuck the record company, god damn this all. This is the last show we're doing, we're leaving the tour, I'm going back to Madison, Wisconsin, where I'm from. I'm going to build a studio in the basement of my house. I'm going to put roofs on during the day, and I'm going to do music the way I think it should be done. Wow. That person was Butch Vig. Butch Vig was the guy who produced Nevermind wow. by Nirvana. Yeah. The beginning of the grunge age. So this was 1987. So fast forward to what? You know, was it 91 when that was released? And, you know, it was a tradition that, you know, us, the various record people, record guys would trade CDs. Well, what are you working? I'm working this song. I've got this great song by Lenny Kravitz. I got this great album, Lenny Kravitz, David Bowie here. Oh, okay, Nirvana. And I, you know, take the Nirvana album from my buddy who worked, um, you know, at that label. And, and I'm looking at, okay, produced by Bye. Butch Vig. Butch Vig. Butch Vig. Butch. And I'm saying to myself, Butch, you did it. You, you know. You glorious, glorious bastard. Right, right. <laughs> you did it. And, you know, the rest is history. You know, it was Nirvana. It was the beginning. Yeah. Uh, so that was like 90 or 91. I forget exactly. Maybe 91, 92. Uh, so fast forward a few years later. I think it was like 1986 or 1996. Uh, and I'm working... Uh, a new album from the Smashing Pumpkins, um, you know, uh, the one with Tonight on it, uh -huh. uh, you know, the Infinite Sadness. Yes. Double album. Yeah, great album. Yeah. And uh, I'm in Syracuse, New York. Uh, at this point, I believe that was the third album that Butch had produced for the Smashing Pumpkins. And um, he was warming up for the Smashing Pumpkins at this Syracuse show. It was Syracuse, New or excuse me, not Syracuse. I take that back. Saginaw. Saginaw, Michigan. He was warming up with his band Garbage. Okay? And, um, you know, I, it, it was a long day, and I'm checking into the hotel in Saginaw. Uh, this is the first show on the tour. And there's a long line of people. I mean, you do smaller markets like that to warm up. It's kind of a dress rehearsal for the sure. show to warm up for the bigger markets. The next show is in Chicago. So there's a lot of people in Saginaw that don't want to be there. You know, there's a lot of press people there. It's way more crowded than Saginaw would usually be. So there's a long line. And I'm in line, and I get up at the hotel, and I get up to the desk finally, and, and you know, it's... Uh, Okay, uh, Mr. Young, uh, here are the keys to your room, and the elevators are over there. If you need anything, let us know. Have a good night's stay. And I turn around, and the guy behind me is standing there kind of pointing at me, going like this. With a, yeah. air, an air of recognition? Yes, yeah. yes. He goes, Kevin Young. I said, Butch Vig. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, wow. all these years later, like, Butch, how have you been? I can't believe it, and it's so great. And you know, we're going back and forth. We we had about a twenty-minute conversation, and and this was the first time I asked him because, you know, way back when, when when he was on that bus and he was in such a rage. I mean, it was the kind of rage where it's like, I yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm going to go get a drink now, guys. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> uh, you know, so this is you know at long last, Butch. I asked. I said, Butch, so. What was the deal? You were so upset that day. What were you, you know, what, what was going on? He said, you know, 
when we signed with Atlantic Records, I had a record that was entirely different than the one that they delivered to you. I was new. I didn't know any better at the time. I just knew that, okay, these, this is the record company that signed a deal. I should do what they're telling me to do. Right. When I when was told what you were going through to get this record played and understood that it was the wrong thing to do, that's why I was so upset. And that's why I knew I had to go to Madison. I had to do my own thing because that was an incredible betrayal uh, he felt. Uh, and, uh, you know. Wow. And that's what took him, you know, to Madison. And that's what, you know, the turn of events made it that this, so this I, guy was. I don't mean to make this sound bigger mm -hmm. than it is, mm -hmm. but my translation mm -hmm. and maybe because we're good friends mm -hmm. <laughs> but my translation of this story is yeah. because of your honesty mm -hmm. because you broke the rules mm -hmm. and said things and that I, you know really took a walk yeah you know i i you know look guys you can't go back to new york and tell them I right this, right so. yeah mm -hmm. but because you did what you did mm -hmm. and facilitated that rage mm -hmm. out of butch <laughs> yeah that is what propelled him to do what he did. So if there, if there was no Kevin Young <laughs> on a bus yeah. uh, mm -hmm. uh, saying what he said, mm -hmm. there might not be a Butch Vig producing Nirvana's first album. You can't argue with me. Uh, I don't know. You can't argue with me. You know. You can't argue with me. <laughs> if I go back in time. Yeah. And, and screw up the timeline yeah. and stop you from getting on that bus mm -hmm. and talking with that band. Yeah. Kind of like back in time. Yes. You, you know, know, you know, the butterfly yeah. effect, you know, <laughs> I change it. You know, there's no Nirvana. What was the, there, the there's flex, no, grun there's no grunge music. Break out the flex com uh, yes. capacitor, everybody. Yes. Let's go back. And, yes. and I don't go on the bus. Okay. You don't go on the bus. I change music history forever if I go back in time and keep you off that bus. <laughs> Uh, oh. I, I have to finish the story. Oh, there's more? Yes. I don't, how does it get even better than that? Okay. Later on in the day, I was at the rock station, you know, promoting records, doing my thing. And, you know, Butch's record, Garbage, was on, I believe, Interscope. And the Interscope rep brought him into the radio station for him to do an interview. And he walked into the radio station, and uh, the music director at the radio station in Saginaw, pulled out a Firetown record. <laughs> a record. A record. We were already well into CDs, right. but he had the Firetown record. record. And Butch took a, a look at this record, um, you know, Sharpie in hand, and he just kind of smirked. And he starts writing. And he writes on there, old bands never die, they just turn into garbage. Butch Vig. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Great footnote. Great footnote. You know? That's a great story. I know you've had uh, personal dealings with other great artists, Keith Richards. I remember mm -hmm. when you were, I remember I was at the radio station at the time when you were pushing his solo effort. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you've had actually uh, dialogues with Keith Richards. Oh, yeah, in uh, the Rolling Stones. In the Rolling Stones. You know. Yeah. Just, 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 you know, don't go into, you don't have mm -hmm. to go into big detail, but just, 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 just for the sake of our listeners, just go mm -hmm. down the, you know, because they'll be, they'll be listening around me they're going, no way, no way. Just go down a list of some of the artists you've actually had, you know, communications and relationships and business relationships with where you actually hung out with them. Well, you know, I mean, like, you, you know, I like to talk about the Rolling Stones. I mean, the time that I had with the Rolling Stones, you know, it wasn't like we went out to bars, we hung out and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was mostly all business. It was a matter of going back and, you know, setting up meet and greets. But... You know, the outstanding thing about setting up meet and greets with bands like the Rolling Stones. Do they like meet and greets? Yes. Yes. They do? Yes. Yes. Bands in general or the Rolling Stones? Well, not bands in general, but the Rolling Stones. It was always such a delight to see the Rolling Stones come in to do a backstage. And mind you, you know, it was... It was a photograph. It, 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 before they came in, you told your winners and your radio people, okay, you, you, you need to line up here, and the Stones are going to stand right in front of you, you know, and then we're going to snap the shot. So we're talking about an encounter of all about, you know, 120 seconds, two minutes. But they'd come in, and they were so glad to meet people, and they were so kind to people, you know, 
and they were genuinely glad to do it. And I've got the photographs, and and you know the smiles are just everywhere. They loved it as much as the people who they were meeting. You know, like I re I'll never forget in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, uh, we did a contest, um, and we had winners back from the radio station there. And these two women were groupies from way back in the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they had had a few miles on them, <laughs> you know. And I'd been given the instructions, you know, now there'll be no hugs. There'll be no hugs, you know. They'll just come in and, and shake hands, and we'll take the shot, and then the guys are out of here. And, uh, you know, boy, when the stones came out, uh, you know, the old groupie, who was dressed like a groupie, stretched out her arms and said, Oh, Mick! And you know what? Mick Jagger smiled ear to ear. And she, he hugged her and was just so kind. And I thought I was dead. <laughs> <laughs> but it was okay. It was all right, because okay. he chose to. Right, he chose right. to. He chose and to. I mean, you know, they're, they're in that... They're, they're in that time in their lives. You know, I, Graham Nash is such a nice human. I mean, just such a nice guy. Was always so great to winners. David Bowie, you know, another guy who you would think, well, you know, why, why does David need to meet people? Uh, you know what? He enjoyed meeting people. And, you know, at the time we were working his records in the 90s. And, you know, what you have to understand is that, uh, you know, Bowie was a legend, but he hadn't had hits for 10 years, mm -hmm. you know, and, and David took the time to, you know, uh, make note of who the program directors were and remember their names. And, you know, he'd want to know is, you know, is so-and-so from such-and-such -such record company coming back and so-and-so, I'd like to talk to him. You know, he did that, you know, the second time around after he'd met him first, the first time. So he once again reworked his business model. Yeah, right, exactly. So to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I have very, very few bad moments uh, with, with stars and far more, you know, really wonderful stories like those. I want to close on a slightly sentimental note. I mentioned okay. it at the beginning of the podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, that was great. My pleasure. Thank I, you. Thank you for this wonderful whiskey. Oh, you're welcome. The old medley, which uh, is, like I said, Ranging between fifty to seventy-eight bucks a bottle. Nice yeah. mash bill, corn rye, malted barley, uh, and a wheat strain and uh, a, a yeast. A wheat, a yeast strain, which the family still keeps a secret to this day. That's their little. Uh, we're not telling you what this particular yeast strain is because that's what makes our our whiskey the whiskey that it is. And for the price, I'll be honest. There's mm -hmm. probably some better tasting whiskeys, but. When you encompass the entire history of Old Medley, you know, mm -hmm. it's worth the money. So, that aside. Okay. You and I go back to probably fifth or sixth grade. Yeah. And when we used to hang out together. Yes. We <laughs> used to uh, play, for lack of a better description, radio. Yep. We used to play radio. Mm -hmm. uh, with a, a cassette recorder. Right. And... Uh, we also took uh, home movies. Right. We, we were making movies and playing radio. The old eight millimeters. A, a, as kids. Mm -hmm. And I still remember one of the songs that we played on the cassette recorder that we introed. Yeah, it was uh, the theme from MASH, Suicide is Painless. Oh, my God. Why did I like that song? I don't know. It was a big hit back then. Yeah, right, right, it was, right. It was, it was a big hit song. yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and I loved Mash. I mean, yeah, the movie I, I and know. the series. You know. And that was one of the songs yeah. that 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 we were that was on. I don't remember any of the other ones, but I do remember that one. Mm -hmm. And we were doing our our radio show. Yes. And then we had the eight millimeter camera, and mm -hmm. we were out. And he actually has uh, something on YouTube. Yeah. Right. Of us. Yeah. With the camera. Yeah. That we need to locate. We did a man in the street kind of thing. Yeah. Went to the local mall, uh, the in Fort Stupid, Stupid Hill, Mall, Ohio. which was a brand new mall brand at the time. New, yeah. yeah, and uh, we stood outside, <laughs> and we did you know, man in the street kind of interview stuff. And uh, my God, uh, we were kids. Yeah, right. We were kids, right. and then years later, you know, I'm I'm twenty, yeah. starting my twenty fifth year in radio. Yeah. You've been in the record business since 1986. Mm -hmm. And, and I was in radio. And you was, were in radio as you know, well. Let's I, not forget I, that. I was in radio from 80 to 86. I went to Kent State and actually spent... I did some stand-up mm -hmm. when I was at Kent State. I did not know you yeah. did stand-up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
I have to say this. This is what I remember about you and I, was that uh, so many times, you know, we were playing radio and we did the man in the street thing, but we would talk about, you know, in detail about, you know, the business, about the entertainment business, and we were both, from a young age, headed into the entertainment business in one way or another. Whether we realized it or not? I think we both knew. We both knew that that's what we wanted to do? I knew that we were going to get there. I knew... I knew at that time that I was going to go to college somewhere and I was going to get involved in television. I knew that, you know, as distant as that seemed and as unattainable as people thought it was, that one way or another, I was going to get in the entertainment business. Originally, it was going to be TV. But, you look, you know, I, I got sidetracked into this radio thing and it's hasn't sucked. No. Not at all. No, no. You know, but, you know, it, so, you know, you ended up in the inter- entertainment business. I mean, you know, you've toured the country as a stand-up comedian. You've settled into this fantastic job. I've, I've, I've done my thing. So it's funny that you and I had these conversations so, so long many ago. years ago. From, we, you know, from very, very young age. We set the tone. We did. And, and followed through whether we meant to or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, happy accidents. There you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to wrap things up for tonight. Um, once again, the guest bottle has been Old Medley. If you find it, you know, like I said before, collect art, people. Drink whiskey. Don't let it sit on the shelf forever and a day. And, uh, and uh, Kevin, thank you, man. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Um, this was fun. It was it was nice to do a little whiskey business with you. Yes, but sir. I think the, my favorite part of this conversation is I got to visit with an old friend. There you go. That's the best part of it all. <laughs> so let me say this as I do each and every time. Whiskey Business is a Never the Luck production produced with the cooperation of the Columbus Radio Group. I want to thank my producer, as always, Mr. Greg Hansberry, for doing a magnificent job, as always, for putting this uh, little fun piece together week after week. And all the opinions are those of me, your host, Dino Chapotas, and my reluctant guests, and are never meant to offend, only to inform and hopefully entertain. So, until the next bottle. See ya. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. (laughs) I've never done it. (laughs) Right.